1 Samuel 23, the title of the message, God's Will, God's Way, in God's Time. We have been dealing with uh, numerous issues and learning many things as we've walked through the life of, of David as well as Samuel and Saul and 1 Samuel. We're coming near the end of this book now. And, uh, of course, we, we have David fleeing from Saul. We have David fleeing for his life, really. And all throughout this journey that David is on right now, where he's fleeing from the wrath of the king, we recognize that David has indeed been appointed to be the next king in Israel. He was anointed by Samuel to be so. He has, in a manner of speaking, a divine right to the throne. David is fleeing from the current king because the current king is threatened by him. We've talked about jealousy. We've talked about some of those issues. But as he is fleeing from the current king, he knows full well that at some point the Lord is going to give him the kingdom of Israel. And so we find here an interesting circumstance where David is, is um, found really stuck in the middle between what he knows God has for him and where Israel is right now. And that is going to be the backdrop for some of the conflict that we are going to see today from the Word of God. And we're going to walk through, you see, ambitiously, two chapters of Scripture today. And as we seek to get through these two chapters of Scripture, we're going to learn some wonderful lessons uh, from the life of David and from the decisions he has made about how to discern and act upon God's will that will perhaps help some of us today in the circumstances that we are facing. We begin in chapter 23, and this is truly where we find ourselves in David's flight proper, we might say. He has dropped his family off in Moab. He is with his band of political refugees and malcontents. And now, the we might say, the cat and mouse game between Saul and between David really begins. But, but it's more than just a game of hide-and-seek, isn't it? Because there are bigger problems in Israel. As Saul is busy devoting his time, his effort, and his resources to finding David, the world around Saul and David didn't just stop. Uh, Israel still has needs. Israel still has problems, even though Saul, who's supposed to be taking care of those because he's the king, is busy not taking care of them because here he is chasing down David. Israel still has enemies. The people of Israel still have needs. And the problem here is that the man who was charged by God with protecting the people and the land, that being King Saul, is really, he's, he's let this chase for David completely blind his eyes to some of the other needs and issues in the land. He's abandoned his responsibility, we might say, in order, in this case, to pursue David in this misguided rage and jealousy. And in what is perhaps a stroke of divine irony, we find in chapter 23 that David, the one who is anointed king but who is not king, the one who is fleeing from the king, is going to do for Israel what Saul is not doing. And so we read in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 23, Then they told David, saying, Behold, the Philistines fight against Calah. And they robbed the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go to smite these Philistines? And the Lord said unto David, Go and smite the Philistines and save Calah. We go back in time a little bit now. 
The events with David and Kayla actually begin before what we read at the end of chapter 22, where we see um, Doeg killing the priests of the Lord, and then Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, um, uh, excuse me, the son of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, uh, the, the young man named Abiathar escapes and he flees to David with the ephod. And he tells David that all of these priests have been killed by Saul. If you remember those events from two weeks ago, we're actually, th- this is happening a little bit before or concurrently with those events. So in other words, um, um, Abiathar is not yet with David. The priests have not yet been killed. And while Saul is distracted doing that, David is going to help the people of Kayla. He inquires of the Lord, likely through the prophet Gad, who we know that is with him. And God tells David to go. Go and help this city. And so he plans to do so. But as the text continues, and I'm not going to read all the verses this morning. I'm going to fill in some of the gaps because of how much ground we're covering. As the text continues this morning, we we find that David's men are far less comfortable with this plan. And they're not comfortable with this plan because Kayla is a walled city. And what that means is that to whatever extent, for whatever time they're in that city, as refugees and as um, outcasts and malcontents, as those being chased by Saul, they're exposed. They, they are far more vulnerable if they're in a walled city, right? Because they don't have a back door to run out of. Uh, they, they can't just scatter and get away. They're as much contained inside that city as anyone else. And so the, the men were not very comfortable with this. And uh, they tell David that, you know, we're, we're already in Judah, we were in Moab, now we're in Judah. We're already in Judah. We're already living in fear because we're, we're pretty close to Saul. And now you're asking us to expose ourselves to harm by going and fighting against the Philistines in Kayla and much less a walled city. So David, being a wise leader and one who is empathetic to the needs of those whom he's following, uh, listens. And what he does is he inquires of the Lord again. He just double checks. He says, Lord, should we go? Will you deliver the city into uh, the, the Philistines into our hands? And God reiterates, yes, I will deliver your enemies into your hands. You need to go and do this. So uh, having confirmed it with the Lord, they go. They fight with the Philistines. They defeat them. They spoil their goods. They save the city. And verse 6 tells us uh, that it is while David and his men are in Kela following the city's deliverance that Abiathar, this is when he arrives. So they've defeated the Philistines. They're now there in Kela. And Abiathar, whose family has just been killed by Saul, comes to David and tells him everything that we find in chapters 22, uh, verses 20 through 23. And those events take place there uh, in verse 6. Beginning in verse 7, we read that Saul finds out about David being in the city of Kayla, which was what David's men were concerned with. Saul's going to find out and he's going to trap us here. And indeed, Saul does find out. And this excites him because he says Kayla's a walled city. They'll be ensnared. They have no capacity to escape. So we're going to get him this time. And he begins to gather the armies of Israel to besiege David and his men. Literally, Saul is gathering troops to besiege one of his own cities in Israel to get David and his men. And, and if you think about it, this is, this is the crazy place that, that Saul's jealousy and his rage has brought him. We talked several weeks ago about how far jealousy and anger can take us. It has taken Saul so far that he is ready to besiege one of his own cities, a city that had just been delivered from his enemies by the man who he's trying to kill, 
And he's now going to besiege that city again in order to get the man who just delivered the city from Saul's enemies. It's, everything's turned on its head. Everything that's right has become wrong and wrong has become right. Saul has completely lost himself in, the, in his rage and in his jealousy. He's not thinking clearly. He has become, it's beyond unreasonable. And David assumes that this might be the case. Uh, he went into Kayla knowing the possibilities. And so uh, as a military leader and as the leader of many men, this time he calls Abiathar the priest. And he inquired of the Lord before, likely from Gad. This time he, he calls Abiathar the priest who has the ephod. And he calls upon him uh, to bring the ephod in order to inquire of the Lord. Now, I believe we mentioned back in 1 Samuel 2 when we were talking about Eli and Samuel what an ephod was. But let's just review some of that together and for the benefit of some who, who weren't here. The ephod was a vestment. It was a piece of clothing. It was a robe that the high priest wore and it was made of linen. Uh, and that linen was gold and blue and purple and scarlet. It would have been very fine, very beautiful, and um, it would have gone uh, possibly just to above the knee, maybe down a little bit farther. There's some, some debate as to how far the ephod would have gone. It would have been an outer garment. All of the robes would have been underneath and such, and it was a religious garment. It was held together on the shoulders with um, two stones, and each of those stones, it, they were inlaid in gold, and those stones, one side had six tribes of Israel engraved on them, one side had the other six tribes of Israel engraved on them, and that was the ephod proper. Typically attached to the ephod would be a golden breastplate, and that golden bre breastplate had 12 unique stones, and it would be in four rows of three. Each stone had the name of a tribe of Israel engraved on it, and that would be worn on it. And then somewhere uh, on the whole vestment would also be the Urim and the Thummim, which nobody really knows what they were except that they were used to, to discern the will of God. Uh, some believe it was some sort of casting of lots, uh, a certain stones. We're not really sure what the Urim and the Thummim were, but they would be on the, the ephod typically as well. Now, in this case, it appears that it was just the linen garment. We know that the, the Urim and the Thummim are not with them because we'll see Saul consult it later. It's possible the breastplate was also there, but when all of the priests were killed, Abiathar grabbed the ephod and he ran for David. And so they've got the ephod and um, because they've got a part of the high priestly vestment, um, David is asking Abiathar here to put the ephod on and then to exercise his role as high priest to inquire of the Lord as a mediator between the Lord and the king. And that's what David is doing here. So David inquires of the Lord to know whether or not Saul will come down. And God tells David, yes, Saul will come down and he will besiege the city. And then David says, well, Lord, if they besiege the city, will the men of Calah give us up? I mean, these are the men that we just delivered. These are the men that we just rescued. If Saul comes down, are they going to arrest us and, and kick us out of the city and give us over to Saul? And God says, yes, they will. Uh, when Saul comes, they will give you up. David says, I guess it's time to go then. And so he takes his men and the scriptures tell us um, that he's now up to 600 men. Remember in chapter 22, he only had um, 400 men. Now he's up to 600 men. So he's gathering himself a nice little crew here. And this 600 men and David leave and they run. And the scriptures tell us that when Saul hears that they left the city, he abandoned his plan. He says, okay, they're gone. Never mind, not going to siege the city anymore. And the city is also spared. 
Now in verse 17, uh, the cat and mouse game continues. David is running, Saul is pursuing, and the scriptures say that they go back and forth basically across the wilderness of Judea. One's going one way, one's going the other, and they, they're crossing paths. They're tra- uh, Saul is chasing David. David is staying a couple steps ahead of Saul, and, and they're just playing a cat and mouse game. And we find in verse 16 that at one point, they're fairly close to where Jonathan is, And Jonathan is actually able to go out to the forest and he's able to speak to David and he's able to encourage him in the Lord. And look what Jonathan tells David we have here in verse 17. And he, that's Jonathan, said unto him, David, fear not for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find thee and thou shalt be king over Israel and I shall be next unto thee and that also Saul, my father, knoweth. Jonathan again reflects his fantastic character here, showing himself to be a true friend of David and one tirelessly devoted to the will of God above himself. Now, we've seen in in certain contexts that um, Jonathan has not always done well. But in this case, once again, he recognizes that God's will is more important. He also believes at this point that he'll be able to stand by his friend's side when his friend becomes the king. He says, you'll be king and I'll be with you. And that's because they've sworn this covenant, right? That David would not harm Jonathan or Jonathan's family. Um, we'll, we'll find as we continue in the text that that is not a part of the Lord's will. But Jonathan here is, it, it's just, it's a blessing, is it not? When you see the crazed selfishness of his father, to see Jonathan, who is technically losing the throne to his friend David, the, the heirship to the throne, but that's okay because this is what the Lord wants. And if the Lord wants it, it's what's best. Verse 18 tells us that they renewed their covenant. David remained in the woods. Jonathan went back to his house. All throughout these events, David has been running around in the wilderness, the scriptures tell us, of Ziph. Now, Ziph was a town in the hill country of Judah. And beginning in verse 19, we find the first of two occasions where the people of the city attempt to betray David into the hands of Saul. The scriptures tell us, Then came up the Ziphites, in verse 19, to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the woods, in the hill of Hakilah? which is on the south of Jeshimon. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. So as if I'd say, he's in this area, you come down and we'll get him and we'll deliver him into your hands. And Saul continues instructing the people to note all of the places where David goes. Follow him, note the places where he goes, find all of his hiding places. He says, I don't want to come down for nothing. Find them all. And then if he, if he escapes from one, we'll know where he's going next and we will root him out. However, David stays on the move, one step ahead uh, typically. And of course, the Lord is guiding him and he ends up going out of the range of Ziph and he goes into the wilderness surrounding the city of Maon. Saul hears this. He pursues David there, the scriptures tell us. And verse 26 tells us that in Maon, David and Saul see themselves on opposite sides of the mountain. So they're running, and at some point, they find themselves on two mountains with with a valley in between, and they're on opposite sides here. And this excites Saul 
because he sees David there and, and he's close. I mean, he can see him. And Saul begins to enact a plan where he's going to send his troops around and try to, try to cut David off and surround him so that they can catch him and all of these men. But, but God's providence is still at work. And the Scriptures tell us that as he is enacting this plan, messengers come to Saul and tell him that the Philistines have invaded the land. Well, this time, apparently, uh, it's something that Saul can't ignore. He ignored it when Caleb was under attack, but in this case, apparently, he can't ignore it. And so he is forced to leave off chasing David right at this point where he might have had him and has to go take care of the Philistines. As he does so, the Scriptures tell us David flees and he goes to the cliffs of Engedi. We'll talk about that in just a moment. All of this forms the backdrop to an incredible set of circumstances that take place in chapter 24. This, as this chapter begins, we find Saul, he finishes up the battle with the Philistines and he turns his eyes back toward David. David's still in the wilderness of Engedi, and we read this in verses 1 and 2. And it came to pass when Saul returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men of all Israel and went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. Notice the description of the wilderness of Engedi. When I say wilderness, perhaps you think of trees and um, forests and bushes and hills and such. The wilderness of Engedi wasn't quite like that. This was the place upon which wild goats reside. It was a very rocky place, extremely difficult to traverse and full of caverns everywhere. So rocks, caverns, hills, cliffs, that was the wilderness of Engedi. So he's not hiding amongst trees here, he's hiding amongst rocks. And because there are caves everywhere, you can imagine how difficult it would be to search this place, the wilderness of Engedi. Needle in a haystack would have probably been a good description of what it would have been like for Saul to try to chase David through this wilderness. But Saul takes 3,000 men and he's pretty determined to do so. And we find that Saul didn't just come close this time. He came desperately close to his goal. Look at verse 3. The scriptures say, And he, that Saul, came to the sheepcoats by the way where was a cave. And Saul went in to cover his feet and David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. Uh, the, the Hebrew term to cover one's feet would be what we'd call today going to the bathroom. So he goes into the cave to relieve himself and it would have been a place of privacy for him and he would assume relative protection. The problem is this is the same cave where David and his men were residing. Now, we don't know if it was all of his men or some of his men. Uh, we would assume if there were 600 men in there that this was a pretty big cave. Um, it may have been that or it may have just been some of his men, but some of the men, David's in this cave. So they're around the walls of this cave in the shadows in the corners while Saul is in there doing his thing. And this is a very tense moment for everyone. I mean, not Saul, he doesn't know what's going on. But, but as far as David and his men are concerned, you have to imagine this is a very tense moment. But it's also a moment that brings a unique character to it. Verse 4 says this, And the men of David said unto him, Behold the day of which the Lord, had, uh, the Lord said unto thee, Behold, I will deliver thine enemy into thine hand, 
that thou mayest do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose, the scriptures tell us, and cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. So the men that are standing around with David, and apparently they were able to whisper to him without fear of being heard, say, this is it, David. Saul's here. He wanted privacy so his, his guards aren't with him. He is, he, he is not, he's in a moment of vulnerability. Remember, David, God has promised you the kingdom. God has promised you that you will be king. This has got to be the moment God was promising. This, is, this has got to be the Lord telling you it's time. This is His will that you can, you can kill Him now. You can take the throne now. Well, David didn't agree though. And we'll talk about this, why it is when we get to our application time. He did, however, see this as an opportunity to show Saul how close Saul had come to death perhaps. And if not just that, to show Saul that he had no, no negative intentions against him. Perhaps it was a strategic move to convince Saul that he needed to give up the fight. So David quickly sneaks up and he takes a piece of the clothing of Saul and he cuts it off. Saul doesn't find out apparently. And Saul finishes up and he leaves. Immediately, however, the scriptures tell us that David was convicted for his actions. He felt as though he shouldn't have done it. He didn't want an intimidation tactic to be between him and Saul. Saul was the king. Saul was the anointed of God. And for David to do anything that could be perceived as harmful or threatening to Saul was outside of what David knew God wanted of him. David wasn't interested in taking the throne from Saul. David was interested in taking the throne that God gave him when God gave it to him. He wasn't interested in insurrection and he didn't want Saul to think he was in, in, interested in insurrection. And so he was immediately convicted even just for cutting off the skirt of Saul's garment because he felt as though perhaps it could be perceived as some sort of point of um, hostility. In deep conviction... David certainly kept his men from hurting Saul. And after Saul left the cave, the Scriptures tell us in verse 8 that David went out after Saul. And he says this, David also arose, verse 8, and went out of the cave and cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed himself. David called Saul. Saul turns around and as Saul turns around, he sees David on his face bowing before him. Complete humility. Abject submission. David uses this as an opportunity to remind Saul that he is not the enemy. Whoever it is, he says, that's convincing you that I'm your enemy, don't listen to them. I am not your enemy. He shows Saul that he had that opportunity to kill him, but that he would not do it because he will not touch the Lord's anointed. On principle, David said. He said, I had the strategic advantage, but David wasn't interested in strategy. He wasn't interested in his solutions. He was going to do what God wanted him to do on principle and leave the results to God. And because David was a man of principle, he's trying to convince Saul here, you can trust that I will do what is right before the Lord. And you're the Lord's anointed which means you can trust me to do right by you. If the Lord saw fit to choose him to be king, the Lord could see fit to depose Saul at his will, not David's will. If the Lord wanted David to be king, the Lord could see fit to give David the kingdom apart from violence against the one who is not only his king, but remember, it's also his father-in-law. 
He's mar- David is married to Saul's daughter. And David ended up using this piece of, of the robe, of the skirt of Saul, as the evidence of his good intentions, that he didn't kill Saul. And Saul must have come to the realization that he very well could have, and by all accounts should have died right there. And in the midst of his hatred and violence, his perceived adversary gives back only graciousness and kindness. And the Scriptures say that David then, in verses 12 and 13, reminds Saul that what he's doing is wrong. He says, The Lord judge between me and thee, and the Lord avenge me of thee. But mine hand shall not be upon thee. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. David effectively tells Saul this, Saul, I'm, I, I trust the Lord. I'm not going to hurt you because you're the Lord's anointed and you're my father-in-law. The Lord will avenge me of you. You don't have to fear me. But he is implicitly also saying, the way you're acting, Saul, you do need to fear the Lord. Because you are doing wrong here. And then he gives this proverb. He calls it a proverb of the ancients. He says, Wickedness proceedeth from the wicked, but mine hand shall not be upon thee. May I translate this into a modern idea? I'm not going to stoop to the wrong of those who are trying to wrong me. This is what we talked about this morning in Matthew chapter 5 in Sunday school. That we avenge not ourselves that we love our enemies, that we do good to them that hate us, that we pray for them that would despitefully use us. David says, and this is a proverb all the way back, he says, from the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked. If you're not wicked, then don't do wickedness, even if wickedness is proceeding toward you. So David is yet very respectful, telling Saul that it's utterly beneath the dignity of his office to pursue a man of such little consequence as David, he commends Saul to God that Saul would judge between them and would thus deliver David from Saul's hand. Now this speech from David really causes Saul to just break down. He breaks down into tears. And in a rare moment of lucid and reasonable thought, Saul says this in verses 17 to 19, Thou art more righteous than I, for thou hast rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded thee evil. And thou hast showed this day how that thou hast dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord had delivered me into thine hand, thou killest me not. For if a man find his enemy, will he let let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for that thou hast done unto me this day. David's point is taken by Saul. That Saul has rewarded evil for David's good. That David has shown himself an honorable man. That he's not rewarding evil for evil. He has proven that he does not regard Saul as an enemy. Saul realizes that the Lord will reward David's integrity. And he continues in verses 20 and 22 saying this, And now behold, I know well that thou shalt surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now therefore unto me by the Lord that thou wilt not cut off my seed after me, and that thou wilt not destroy my name out of my father's house. And the scriptures say, And David swear to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men get them up to the hold. So Saul admits here, and Jonathan said his dad already knew this, but Saul admits, I know that you will be king. I admit that you will be king. And he says, And when you're king, will you swear to me that you won't 
destroy my name out of my father's house. Swear that, that you won't destroy my family. Well, David had already sworn this, right, to Jonathan. He'd already sworn that he won't destroy Jonathan and his family. So, so that, that's already taken care of. He reiterates that covenant to Saul. Saul is satisfied. And the Scriptures tell us they part ways. And Saul goes home. David, however, isn't convinced. He goes back to the hold. Now, the last time we saw this phrase, the hold, it was speaking of perhaps a safe house in Moab. He had dropped his parents off in Moab and then he went to the hold and Gad said, don't stay in the hold, go back into Judah, right? So, so he, was, he went back to the hold, wherever that hold might be, probably a safe house in Moab. And this indicates that David was going to kind of sit back and see if anything changed before he finally thought this was over. And if things had finally changed, then he would get his family back from Moab and they'd, they'd go back to living life. But he's not convinced of that yet. And it's right for him not to be convinced of that yet because Saul's not going to stop chasing him. This was a moment. It may be kind of a life for life thing. David spared my life. I'm going to spare his life. We don't exactly know why uh, other than Saul finally came back to his own thinking for a moment, reasonable thinking. But he's done chasing him for now. He'll be back there though when the evil spirit uh, arrives again. As we consider these two chapters of Scripture that we've just covered, and we covered a lot of ground very quickly, I'd like us to apply in a very focused fashion. There are several lessons we could learn from this today, lessons which we're going to put off for another day. The first lesson we're going to put off is how to treat those in authority over you. We're going to talk about this likely in 1 Samuel 26 when we get there in a couple of weeks. The second lesson we could talk about is how to handle situations where, those have, where people have done us wrong. Uh, David refused to stoop to the level of the offender. Uh, he did not seek his own personal vengeance. He was relying upon the Lord to avenge him. Uh, we'll come back to that as we talk more about, uh, as we preach through a few of the Psalms that are related to 1 Samuel in January. But for this morning, I'd like us to consider David's refusal to kill Saul from the perspective of understanding God's will. We've talked about it a, a little bit already, but the question comes up, why didn't David kill Saul? As David and his men stood in the sides of the cave watching Saul, this is what David's men knew and what David knew. They all knew that God had promised that David would be king. David had been anointed by Samuel himself to be king. They all knew that God had promised that David, David's enemies would flee from him. That David would conquer his enemies. And as we consider the situation as it presented itself to David here, we cannot argue with the fact that Saul's death would indeed have positioned David to be in a place more likely to fulfill the end goal of David becoming king and his enemies fleeing before him. But David didn't kill Saul. And he had a very specific reason for not doing so. David was a very humble man, and as a humble man, he wasn't interested in taking the throne, we've mentioned already, or claiming the throne. What David was interested in was God's will. Now, he knew that God had promised the throne, but the very fact that God had promised it means David would not have to go outside of himself to get it. David knew that God's will would come God's way and in God's time if he would wait on God's will. 
You know, when the big decisions come in our lives, life-changing decisions, the biggest struggle is the doubts and the fears that arise. Could you imagine the kinds of doubts that would have confronted David within the context of becoming the king of Israel? Not just the can I do the job, but more importantly, can I lead a nation of divinely chosen people into God's will? David couldn't leave that decision just up to chance. He couldn't just follow his heart and hope for the best. He needed to know how, not just what God wanted, but how God wanted it to come to pass. He had to know what God wanted so that he could be confident in his steps, confident in the results. He'd already experienced the consequences of doing things his way, right? He comes up to Ahimelech and he says, Hey, Ahimelech, I'm hungry. Ahimelech says, Where's your man? He says, My, uh, I'm on a, a secret mission for the king. Ahimelech believes him and 85 priests are killed as well as all of their families. That's what happened when David did it his way. That's what happened when David tried to problem solve on his own. He wasn't interested in problem solving on his own. He was interested in God's way, in God's time, into God's will. And we see that he learned his lesson, Right? Kayla shows us that. And David didn't just jump in and deliver the people of Kayla. He asked the Lord, then he asked his people, then he asked the Lord again. He's got his head screwed back on straight. He's interested in doing it God's way. David was a leader. He understood that as a leader, his choices had consequences. That his choices affected the lives of all of those who were under him. So too it is often in our lives, as we have spoken of already, you know, our decisions matter. We want God's best. The question then becomes, how do we find it? We want what God wants, but it isn't as easy as just opening the Bible and knowing whether we should buy that car or buy that house or take that job or quit that job or move or stay. So how do we discern God's will? We're going to cover this from a couple of different angles. I'm going to give you three points about discerning God's will that we we draw from the context this morning. And then I'm going to give you some advice from a man much, much wiser than I. Uh, and um, his advice will help us as well as we seek to understand how to discern the will of the Lord. And in doing so, by God's grace, we can become men and women who act not just within the general framework of biblical principles, but with direct confidence that the direction we are going is the direction that God wants us to go and thus one that rests firmly within God's provision and God's blessing. And principle number one, this is an important one. Don't follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. The idea of following your heart has been around forever and has been deeply driven into the mindset of Western culture, particularly for the past 60 years or so. The the Bible regularly uses body parts as indicators of certain uh, elements of life, Uh, The bowels in the Bible are typically used as an indicator of the seat of our emotions. Uh, The tongue is the seat of our communication. And the heart is typically the seat of human thought and will. So when we say don't follow your heart, what it means is don't just do what feels good. Don't just do what you think is right. The idea as we think of this on the authority of God's Word is that This way of thinking is not just wrong. It's not just wrong to follow your heart, to do just what you think is best best to follow your gut. It's destructive. The only time doing what we think is right is actually right is when what we think is right is conformed to what God says is right. 
The only time following our heart is the way to go is when our heart is completely yielded to the heart of God. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, we read this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our personal will and emotions are predisposed to evil. Did you know that? If you were to take two children, put them in a closed room, and put one cookie in the middle, they would not split that cookie in half, give half to... Unless you've already taught them that. I mean, if these are children that have not been taught anything, we're talking small children, they would not do that. They would go after the cookie. Who can get the cookie first? Who's bigger? Who's stronger? Who's whatever? They're going to... If you put two children in a room with four cookies, it would not be two for you, two for me. It would be... I'm going to take the four cookies. We are predisposed towards evil. Humans are naturally bent this way. And the Bible tells us this. There are none righteous, no, not one. There are none that do good. There are none that seek after God. And this is because we have a sin nature. It's baked into us. We are born sinners. Our natural state is greed and selfishness and unkindness and all things evil. The Bible tells us this. Sinful human nature is tempered only by law. Whether that's the law of God written on our hearts, our conscience, or whether that's the laws of government, or whether that's the law of the family as set by the the parents, or whether that's the Word of God, it is only as we learn what is right and wrong that we and, and recognize consequences for the wrong that we are guided into the right and we can train our wills to do what is right. It is not a natural human predisposition. This verse doesn't just say that your heart is wicked though, does it? It says your heart is wicked and deceitful. Your sin nature isn't just wanting to do what's wrong, but it's capable of tricking you into thinking that what is wrong is right. It's capable of rationalizing your wrong decisions into into what you think are right decisions. It's capable of telling you this is okay when you come to a crossroads in something that you know you shouldn't do, and then you begin to rationalize why it's probably okay that you do it. And so we can't trust, not even just that we have us in nature, but we can't trust ourselves to rationally bring ourselves into a good frame of mind. Proverbs 28.26 tells us this, He that trusteth in his own heart is a fool, but whoso walketh wisely, he shall be delivered. If you trust in your own heart, the Bible says you are a fool. Proverbs and Psalms have a couple other verses talking about fools, and it's really an amazing thing. You know who else is called a fool? The man who says in his heart there is no God is called a fool. If you trust in your own heart, the Bible equates you at the same level as the man who denies the very existence of God. You're both fools, the Bible says. We cannot trust in our own hearts, we can't just trust our guts. You can't just operate on the basis of what you think is right. You've got to have more direction than that. So if we don't trust our hearts, how do we make decisions? Well, we trust God's Word to guide us into the principles by which we live our lives. And then we trust God's leading from there into the specifics. Point number two, confidence in our decisions is directly linked to evidence of God's desires. The Word of God gives us, quite plainly in fact, general principles by which we live our lives. A general framework that tells us how this world is intended to operate. Let me give you a few of those this morning. The man of faith will be blessed. The man of humility will be blessed. The man who fears the Lord will be blessed. 
The man who works will be blessed. The man who gives will be blessed. The man who sins will without fail reap negative consequences of his sinful choices. Seek first the kingdom of God and the physical needs will be provided. Discipline and train your children in the way they should go and they will learn to fear the Lord. Allow God to avenge injustice and you will be blessed. Forgive as God forgave you and you will be blessed. Honor your authorities and you will be blessed. These are all principles that we find espoused in the Word of God. A generalized framework through which we live our lives. And as we recognize this framework, we see the beginning of the direction we ought to go answered. We begin with what we do know. We conform our hearts to God's heart on those matters. And then we trust God's leading in the areas that we don't know. And He will. He always does lead us. We take steps that God's Word makes clear and watch as opportunities come and go that make God's will clear in that circumstance. If I may put it this way, when something is God's will, it's obviously God's will. If we seek first the kingdom of God, God will make it plain in His time. And we'll come back to the timing thing in a moment. Now consider David's situation as we look for an illustration of this. David is confronted with a decision as to whether or not to kill Saul. He's walking in fellowship with the Lord. He's obeying the Word of God. He's waiting for God to identify uh, the timing of what God would have him to do. So David has a chance to kill Saul and in doing so, perhaps get near to or actually obtain the desired end, which is the throne of Israel. But what does David know? David knows that there's a curse upon the man who speaks against the Lord's anointed. Those that God has put in authority over you, you are to honor, right? David knows this. So can it be possible that God's will would have David kill the man who, ha- who is in authority over him? It's not possible. And David knows that. So David here, though he could rationalize the ends justifies the means and see killing Saul as the means by which to get to God's will, it would not be God's way. And if it's getting to God's will outside of God's way, then it's not really... God's will. He knows he can't kill Saul because if he kills Saul, he'll be disobeying God. David has no authority to kill Saul. The only man that has authority to take Saul's life is God. The only one that has authority to depose Saul as king is God. David has no authority to do that. And so to take that authority, even to try to accomplish God's will, would be to go outside what he knows God has already stated to try to get to that which God has promised. You know, this has happened in the Bible before. Abraham. Abraham was a man who loved the Lord and the Lord told him, you will have a child and that child will become a great nation. Abraham says, God, I don't have a child. Is Eleazar of Damascus, my servant, going to be the man that, that becomes the one who will raise up the seed. And God says, no, it's going to be someone out of your own bowels. The bowels being the place of heritage or the place of lineage or the place of posterity. It'll be a child from you. Well, wife is barren, getting old, no child. Saul, uh, Sarah encourages him to take Hagar, Sarah's handmaiden, to have a child with her. First problem is he submitted himself to his wife. The scriptures 
tell us that that was a big problem in, in Abraham's actions there. The second problem is that he was trying to fulfill God's will his way, not God's way. And so he seeks for a solution to the problem of getting to God's will, but he doesn't wait on God's way and God's timing. He has a man named Ishmael. Ishmael becomes the brother to Isaac, and they become enemies. And for the rest of history to this very day, Ishmael has plagued the children of Isaac. A consequence of Abraham trying to fulfill God's will his way instead of waiting to fulfill God's will God's way. The descendants of Ishmael are the Arab people that surround Israel today. There are many ways that these concepts can play out in our lives. We could give example after example, illustration of illustration. You see an opportunity before you, maybe a better job, something to that effect. But in order to get there, you'd need to go back on a promise. You'd need to breach a contract or an agreement. Well, to go back on your word, to breach a contract or agreement would be uh, an obvious violation of what the Bible says. We talked about it this morning. Let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. So though you're tempted to see that opportunity as from the Lord, you know that if He's going to give it to you, it needs to be His way, not your way, not by breaching that agreement that you have in place. You stick to your agreement, you honor your word, and then the Lord maybe can get you out of that agreement in another way, or the Lord can provide a different opportunity. You do it God's way. You seek God's will God's way. Perhaps you want to buy something that would be good for your family, something big maybe, a car, a house, but in order to get there, you'd need to place yourself under uh, unsustainable debt, or you'd be required to stop giving to others, or you'd need to pick up another job that would cause you to be unable to fellowship among the believers as God has asked us to do. Uh, The principles of God's Word states that the giver is blessed. Tells us that the borrower becomes servant to the lender. Tells us to let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. So though we might think that God wants us to have that thing, we can confidently know that that's not the way God wants us to have it. Because it would place us at odds with His Word. It's not just about God's will, it's about God's way and God's timing. The principles of God's Word don't change. We could, as I mentioned, we could do hundreds of circumstances like this. We don't need to, though, because we fall back upon the principles of God's Word, and that's the, the big first step. Is anything in this circumstance going to make me have to go outside of what God has already given down, laid down in principle for me? And if not, well, then that's a big step forward. Our third point this morning is this. Don't simply identify God's will, but also His way and his timing. David made this decision regarding Saul and he wasn't content simply to know that God's will was that he would become king or that Saul would somehow be disposed. He wanted God's will, God's way, and in God's time. And as we consider everything we just mentioned regarding the will of God, we must keep all of these things in our mind. We must not be content simply seeking to know what God wants of us, but knowing when he wants us to have it and how he wants to give it to us. And that means we must patiently, obediently, humbly follow Him step by step. We must search the principles to ensure that we're conformed to them. We must prayerfully wait for the confidence that comes from God. We must seek counsel from godly men and uh, guiding us into the way that we are to go. Uh, We need to wait for the, the doors of opportunity to open and close. 
And if we're patient and prayerful, then God will make His will and His way known. Now, I've presented this before. I told you I'm going to give you um, some, some advice from, from another man. And that man is, is George Mueller. If you're not familiar with George Mueller, he ran an orphanage. Ran an orphanage in England for many years. And uh, he would take in these, these children from off the streets at a time where there were many children on the streets. And he would care for them. And he is perhaps one of the very best modern examples we have in the Christian church today of faith and of prayer. And he gave in his autobiography a six-fold process of discerning the will of God that I want to give to you this morning. And I'm going to lay it out quite clearly for you. And I have these on the back table as well. If you'd like to take one with you as you go, I would encourage you to take one of these and read through it uh, as, um, as it's presented. And these are the six points. I'll, I'll, we'll cover them one at a time. The first step in, in George Mueller's process, and this is simply how he sought the Lord, was number one, get your own will out of the way. He says this, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to the given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people generally is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever that may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. So be completely yielded. Have no opinion on the, on the subject. If God says this way, I'm going to go this way. If God says, you know, sometimes we do that with, with I, I do that with my wife sometimes, right? I ask her a question wanting a certain answer and when she gives me a different answer, I'm not content with that. Well, then why did you ask the question? If you knew the answer, then you shouldn't have asked the question. You, know, <laughs> just, just, you should have done what, what, what you wanted to do. Why even ask me if I didn't actually have an opinion? When we go to the Lord and we're seeking His guidance, it's not to seek for Him to conform what, confirm us in our way. We need to be seeking His way. And that's step number one. Get your own will out of the way. Step number two. George Mueller says it too. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust your heart. He says, having done this, I do not leave the result to feeling or simple impression. If so, I make myself liable to great delusions. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I don't just trust a generalized feeling that's a problem, he says. Number three, seek the will of the Spirit in connection with the Word, with the Word of God. He says, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to great delusions also. If the Holy Ghost guides us at all, He will do it according to the Scriptures and never contrary to the Scriptures conform our decision to the principles of God's Word. If it violates God's Word, it's not the Holy Spirit telling you to do it. Ever. Ever. If it violates God's Word. You may think it is, but it's, it's not an impression from the Spirit of God. Number four, consider providential circumstances. Next, he says, I take into account providential circumstances. These often plainly indicate God's will in connection with His Word and His Spirit. Providential circumstances. This is when you are praying, Lord, what should I do? I need a new refrigerator. And then you get a call on the phone that says, hey, I have a refrigerator for you. 
would you like to come pick it up? That's a providential circumstance. It makes it fairly clear the direction that the Lord wants you to go and how he's going to provide. It doesn't always have to be that, that simple and that easy. But you seek when you've conformed your heart to the word of God, when your will is completely detached from the circumstances, when you're seeking the leading of the Spirit with connection to God, when you're denying yourself just this following of your gut, when you are there, then you start looking for what we call open or closed doors. You start trying to move in a direction and see if things open, see if things close. See if, if, uh, if, it, if it goes that way, see if it doesn't. See if the Lord brings someone into your life that might give you some advice Wait for God to do things that are obviously from Him that would lead you in the direction that you ought to go. Number five, pray specifically and directly. He says, then I ask God in prayer to reveal His will to me outright. Finally, get down and say, hey God, and this, it, and this is not necessarily the fifth thing that you do in the order. God, show me your will. Pray that throughout. Show me your will. What do you want here? And then finally, Make a deliberate judgment and test it with prayer. He says, Thus, through prayer to God, the study of the Word and reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And if my mind is thus at peace and continue so after two or three more petitions, I proceed accordingly. In trivial matters and in transactions involving the most important issues, I have found this method always effective. You say, well, what does that mean? Read, read some biographies on George Mueller and you'll find what it meant that that was effective in his life. The man is an incredible example of faith and prayer. And this is a man that you can trust to have been led by the Lord properly. And that was his recommendation. Again, there's some of those on the back table, so I didn't linger on the points for you to write down or anything this morning. And as we close, let me just conclude with the results of seeking God's will. And finding it. Truly knowing that we were in God that we are in God's will enables us to delight in the good times, have confidence in the bad times, and rest in joy at all times. You know, being in God's will doesn't mean everything's always gonna go perfectly for you. But you know, when things are going wrong, and you can look back and say, things aren't going the best they could be, but as I look back, I know I'm where God wants me. It gives you confidence in the hard times to be there. And in the times where things are going well, it gives you the joy of being able to rejoice in the Lord, knowing that it was God that brought you there. And at all times, in fact, you can have joy. Because joy is, has nothing to do with our emotions, has nothing to do with circumstances. Joy is that overriding peace that comes from knowing we are where God wants us and that He's in control. And there's no better way to have that confidence than to seek everything within the context of God's perfect will. And this is what God wants from us. I know some of the decisions facing some of the people in this room. I don't know others. But whatever all of those decisions might be, whether trivial or whether large, God wants us, like David, to wait on Him. Not just His will, but His way and His timing. To seek God's will with with the connection to God's Word, with the connection to the principles that He has laid down. And to go the direction that He would clearly lead us as we yield ourselves to His will. 
to sacrifice immediate gratification for the long-term confidence that we're doing what God would have us to do, and above all else, to seek His best, God's best, and leaving the details to Him. Let's pray together.